Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He is the author of Monsieur and the Second Son. And as well as I understand, he's also writing a new survey book on the bourbons, which I am looking forward to reading. I was looking up personally That's earlier right. this week on survey books on the bourbons because they are such a fascinating dynasty. And uh, I found books on bourbon, the whiskey, not the dynasty. So I don't, because I spoke about this and there isn't really any survey books on them. So finally, we're getting there. And But today, we're going to focus on Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI. And how how did you get into? I always ask this in, when you historians how on the podcast how how did you get into this era of French history? Um, well, it's a really sort of interesting story and a bit of a, a, a twisty tale um, <clears throat> because for most of my formation as a historian, um, I always found France to be not the place that I wanted to study. It was the opposite. Um, I was, ever since I was a teenager, I was obsessed with Vienna and the Habsburgs and Austria. Um, and so I, I really always thought of France as the enemy because that's what they, that's what they thought of. Um, and then, and so that's what I studied almost exclusively as an undergraduate. And then when it came time to do a master's and a PhD thesis, my supervisor and I talked about what we could possibly do. And he said, well, how, are your German language skills? Um, and I said, well, I don't have any <laughs> um, because I had studied French in school. And so he said, well, the perfect blend then is to look at the House of Lorraine um, because Lorraine is now part of France and they speak French and the documents will be in French. Um, and the court of Louis Fourteenth is sort of understudied from a scholarly point of view. So that kind of led me into it. And in a way, the House of Lorraine is perfect because the last Duke of Lorraine before it be, was absorbed by France eventually moves to Austria and he marries the Empress Maria Theresa and they are therefore then the parents of Marie Antoinette. So that's kind of what leads this ultimately to, um, to my studying um, not so much Marie Antoinette, but the court of the Bourbons in the 1770s and eighties, I find really, really interesting. Um, and it's a, a turning of the page where France, for the first time, starts thinking about Austria as an ally, not an enemy. And it seems that the general conception of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette is that they were this, this they were this bright, the brightest people in the bunch in the monarchist era, and they were he was kind of silly, and stupid, and kind of obeying Marie Marie Antoinette. What what, what do you think of the make of this? perception of Louis XVI for those who may not have read too much into this area of history? Uh, well, it's maybe a little bit of a harsh um, assessment. Um, I think 
both of them were educated to do a specific thing, which was to function as the as the ceremonial center of a court. Mm. Um, neither of them were particularly educated to deal with revolutionary times or collapsing finances or um, and so. Although some monarchs throughout the history of monarchy, whether it's France or England or whatever, are considered more, quote unquote, intellectual. Um, Louis XVI was never one of those, and nor was Marie Antoinette. Mm. So I think some people have, have thought that if only they had been reigning at a different time period, they might have been a quite successful royal couple um, in a time of peace and calm. And they both were interested in sponsoring um, developments, for example, he was really interested in industry or agriculture or developing France along 18th century lines. And she was, as we know, interested in fashion and art and music. So it's possible that they could have had an entirely different legacy if if France hadn't descended into a, a revolutionary state. Mm. So let's, let's begin with his grandfather, with Louis XV, because he, he wasn't really supposed to come the rule as quickly as it did, wasn't it? But just his father was supposed to take over for his father again, Louis the Fifteenth, as we mentioned. So let's talk about the end of the reign of Louis the Fifteenth, because it seemed to be rather more cruel, the way I understood it, from John Hardman's work on Louis the Sixteenth. Yeah. So he chose fear over popularity. Yeah, there there are a lot of really fascinating things. I think what I like about studying monarchies is that you have to think about these people both as a ceremonial, symbolic uh, institution, an entity, but also as human beings with emotions and fears and feelings. And so a lot of people have tried to read into the formation of a king like Louis the Sixteenth, um, And you have to go all the way back, I think, to Louis the Fourteenth, the in the end of the 17th and the beginning of the 18th century, Louis XIV was such a model for kingship in that he got up early in the morning and he worked all day and he was the perfect bureaucrat monarch in, in that he knew everyone's name, he knew everyone's job, he perfectly functioned. And so when Louis XV took over as a child after 1715, I think he was sort of overwhelmed by his great-grandfather's legacy and so Louis XV, rather than becoming this great, devoted, hardworking servant of the state, I think just turned his attention towards pleasure. And his reign is very long, from 1715 all the way to 1774. Um, and through most of it, he, I think, is much more interested in hunting, uh, collecting art, uh, collecting mistresses. And so his legacy is, is completely opposite. Of Louis the Fourteenth, um, he's much, much more seen as the playboy prince. But in a way, he's also known in France as Le Bien Aimé. He's the well-loved king. Um, people found him non-threatening politically, and just a bit of fun. I think was his his popular image. Um, he then had a son who, as generations go, one generation seems to reject the ideas of the previous generation, you know, it's, it's the same today, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so the Dauphin, the missing generation, Louis XV's son was very pious, very conservative. Um, and so it's possible we might've had a Louis XVI who was very different, really, really. Um, he and his wife, the Dauphin were major supporters of the Catholic church and of the conservative political factions of the middle of the 18th century. 
Um, but as you know, the Dauphin died and so too did his eldest son. So this is the other thing that people have attributed maybe to Louis XVI is that not only did his parents die when he was quite young, leaving him as an orphan, but so too did his, did his beloved older brother, the Duke of Burgundy. Um, so when Louis became the Dauphin himself, um, no longer the Duke of Berry, um, a lot of people have said he he drew withdrew into himself, he became quite depressive, and he was a, a sad, shy, quiet young man. And that's what's portrayed in a lot of the um, the dramas, for example, the, the new miniseries about Marie Antoinette, is that he was so completely shy. Um, and so some people have attributed it to his his loss of his parents and his loss of his brother. And he, his brother did seem, from the way I understand it, his brother was kind of bully as well towards Louis. That could have contributed to the factor as well, I think. I think so. Um, unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot known about the education of the princes. Um, they were kind of kept out of sight, and in particular their parents, while they were still alive, the Dauphin and the Dauphine, were, I think they were so keen to keep these children away from uh, Louis XV. They didn't want the libertine, overly sexual um, influences of, of the court of Louis XV. So they were brought up in a, a very conservative, very religious household at first. Um, and that, I think, also shaped some of it. And then natural competition between boys, between brothers, always always follows through. But there are four sons all together. And it seems that they were kind of raised in pairs. And so the older two, Burgundy and Barry, spent most of their time together. And I think were raised to be quite religious. Whereas the younger two, who were orphaned much earlier, were Provence and Artois, and you can see that their their characteristics are quite different. So let's move away from them for a second and just go to Marie Antoinette and her upbringing. Because as you okay. said, she is the mother. This is a joint biography on both episode on both Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI. So she was a child, as you mentioned, of the legendary Marie. Maria Theresa, sorry. And uh, so, what was her upbringing like? What what was the aim for? And the Habsburg rule. What was the princess of the Habsburg rule right. upbringing well, like? The court of Vienna um, is very, very, very different from the court of uh, Versailles. Um, I don't particularly like the way it's portrayed in a lot of modern TV shows because I think they have this feeling that Vienna is somehow less formal. Um, or has less rules than than Versailles, which, in fact, the opposite, I'm sure, is true. Um, Versailles uh, is a fairly new creation built in the 17th century and with new rules and new etiquette, whereas um, the court in Vienna, based in the Hofburg, in the center of town, or at Schönbrunn, out uh, on the sides, is a much older court and has a much older set of protocols and, and um, etiquette dating back to the time when the Habsburgs were both uh, emperors of the Holy Roman Empire and kings of Spain. Um, it's sometimes called Burgundian etiquette, and it goes all the way back to the 15th century. So Marie Antoinette would have been raised in an environment of, of total superiority. One thing about the Habsburgs is that they're not just rulers of Austria or Hungary or Bohemia, but they're also the imperial family for all of Germany. So even though there are other kings, like in Prussia, 
um, the Habsburgs have always sort of been quite the the preeminent family in all of Europe. They're the only ones for so many centuries with an imperial title. Um, so that's that. I guess you could say is is this the pro of her birth and upbringing. The con, I think, is that she is a very, very, very younger son in an extremely large family. Mm. Sorry, she's not a son. She's a daughter. Um, one, of, She's one of the last daughters of Maria Theresa. And her mother isn't just a queen consort like many others. She is the ruling empress of Austria and the ruling queen of Hungary and the ruling queen of Bohemia. So... Although she is portrayed often as a very good and very attentive mother, she's also running the country, Ooh. running the largest, one of the largest empires in Europe. Um, so you can sort of understand why Marie Antoinette might have been slightly neglected in terms of her upbringing and her education. Um, her father died when she was fairly young. She was only 10. And her mother was quite busy. Um, her mother was pregnant for most of the time. So I, to me, that's always astounding that Maria Theresa not only managed to run an empire, but also was pregnant at least 17 times. I believe that I might be wrong here, but didn't Maria Theresa have an affair with Louis XIV as well at the time? If I, no. I might be wrong or... Well, Louis XIV's wife is called Marie Therese. Okay. Um, yeah. Marie, Marie Theresa. But that's that's a couple of generations earlier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, so I, I think I, that could be a mix up there. Yeah. That I had. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it's often, I like I said, I'm trying to write a book right now about Maria Theresa, the wife of Louis XIV. Yeah. And it is difficult to do research because so often you get things and you start to read them yeah. and realize it's actually about the other Maria Theresa, the mm. one in Austria. So more famous one, <laughs> it's easy yeah. to mix them up. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, yeah. So, but, but what was it? High expectations growing up with such a, I'm, I'm going to say, legendary mother as such as Maria Theresa or Marie Antoinette, or did they have? I like Louis sixteen. Did they have high expectations for her as well, being childhood? Well, yes, I think so because one of the things that makes the Habsburg dynasty different or distinctive amongst all the royal dynasties of Europe is that one of its mottos is where other families wage war, you happy Austria, you marry. Mm. And so for centuries, they had really succeeded on the European stage because of their marriages, either to the heiress of Burgundy or the heiress of Spain. Um, they did quite amazingly well. And so Maria Theresa raised her, her many daughters to say, this is, this is your job is to carry out the Habsburg mission and I guess you could say Habsburgify all of Europe. Um, the earliest ones get married off uh, and don't survive very long. Probably the most significant one is um, Maria Carolina, who marries the king of Naples, who is another Bourbon king. Um, and Maria Carolina, Carolina does seem to have some of her mother's political education and, and intelligence. Mm -hmm. And she quickly realizes that her husband, um, the king of Naples, Ferdinand, is not a good politician and does not have a good um, style or even interest, really, in ruling. So Maria Carolina kind of just takes over Naples and she produces children right away and she becomes a strong political force and really makes Austria, uh, ma makes diplomatic policies for Austria in Italy a reality. So in a sense, it's Maria Carolina who's more the problem 
mm. for Marie Antoinette to try to measure up to. It's not so much their mother, but and you probably have heard of these various letters that Maria, Maria Theresa writes to Marie Antoinette saying, why can't you be more like your sister? Um, Maria Carolina has taken over the government. She has produced heirs. She's doing exactly what she's supposed to do as a Habsburg Archduchess. You know, why aren't you? Mm. So let's talk about the marriage proposal to Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. As you mentioned, they were enemies. So how does this make sense, this marriage alliance? So I guess you have to take the story very, very far back. Um, in the 15th and 16th century, the Holy Roman Empire, governed by the Habsburg family, was mostly an unassailable imperial power. There was no one to rival it except perhaps Spain. And once the Habsburgs were on both thrones, Spain and Austria, they were the premier family in Europe. So the family that felt the most threatened, of course, then was the French royal family. Um, at the time, they were Valois, not Bour Bourbon. Um, and so the Valois struck out really hard to try to counter the threat of being encircled by the Habsburg dynasty. Um, we don't need to go into all that history now. It's several centuries worth of history, mm. but basically it's always fought out in Italy. Poor Italy gets trounced again and again because it's in the way between the Habsburgs and the, the Valois. Um, and again and again, French interests and Austrian interests clash. Um, but finally, by the time you get to the, maybe the middle of the 18th century, both France and Austria are feeling quite threatened by the rise of more powerful Protestant states. Um, Great Britain, by the 18th century, has become the master of the, of the seas, which really annoys the French because they want their naval power to be as strong. And Prussia has suddenly become a new major power on land on the continent of Europe. Um, and so for the first time in centuries, I think the Austrian and the French politicians look across the Rhine at each other and say, well, we are both Catholic, we're both conservative, traditional monarchies, and we're both feeling threatened by these relative upstarts Protestants in Britain and Prussia. So by 1750, this what's called the great reversal of alliances in 1756, just kind of seems like the natural order of things for these two Catholic monarchies to finally join forces um, to see if they can counterbalance the northern powers of, of England and Prussia. Uh, it doesn't work out very well, but <laughs> that's at least the plan. So they, they, something that I want to talk about as well is that Louis XVI, even though we just see the seas once, he's, he is a naval, he has a mass, massive naval interest, doesn't he? He really loves the sea. So how, how does, does this interest spark? Where, where does it come from, even though he just seen the ocean once in his lifetime? Yeah. Yeah, as you said, that's the most interest, intriguing thing about it, really, is that French kings used to travel around quite a lot, um, but after Louis XIV, there is this sense that a, a, a king should simply remain at Versailles and that the whole kingdom should just pivot around him. So Louis XVI reputedly never really goes anywhere, except maybe some hunting grounds around Paris, of course, to Paris itself. Um, and then there is this famous trip to the coast in Normandy where he does see the sea. But at the same time, he is really interested in overseas trade 
Um, he's really interested in how it can develop the country, but he's also really fascinated, I think, by the technical advances um, in steam power and how boats are being uh, made faster and stronger in the late 18th century. And so they do invest money in the Navy, um, and particularly they try to recover from the humiliating defeat against the British um, in 1763. They surrender at the end of the Seven Years' War, which is called the, um, the in French and Indian War in America, and basically lose all of their North American colonies. Um, there's a tiny speck left in the North and a tiny speck left in the Caribbean, but it's a huge, huge humiliation. So one of the great uh, goals of the early part of his reign is to try to come back from that defeat and rebuild up the Navy and try to match British forces. So there are a few successes here and there in some skirmishes in the 1770s. And then the great decision is made to support the United States in its bid for independence against Britain in the late 70s and and actually is, is successful uh, in 1783. America is proclaimed and, and formally recognized as independent and France is given back some of its territories. But more importantly for the king, I think, is given back its its honor, its glory has now been restored mm. and Britain has been humiliated. Um, so that's, I think, the importance of the sea, certainly within this, this story. The bad thing, um, you know, the negative side, of course, is that it has completely bankrupted the country. Mm. Um, and, and France was already really struggling to pay its debts. And by building a navy and sending it off to North America, they have completely almost capsized financially. Mm. And that then leads to the revolution in 89. Of course, that's we're going to come back to the revolution later. Yeah. But it, something I want to mention as well is that it does begin on an artificial harbor. I don't remember the location, but it, the, the, that doesn't finish until way after his lifetime, way after he is beheaded. It, the artificial harbor that is trying to begin begin on it, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's not something I know much about. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it's it's mentioned in John Harmon's biography of Okay Louis sixteen. I don't remember details, but I'm sorry. There's so so many ads coming on today for some reason. I I don't know, <laughs> no idea. Sorry. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's. Let's talk about financial aspect of Louis XVI. I'm sorry if this is a little messy today, but let's talk about the financial aspect because as you mentioned, Marie Antoinette, she likes her balls, she likes her fashion costumes. Yeah. You mentioned bankruptcy. So how much of this financial finances goes to these balls and this lavish fashion projects, to put it that way? Well, I think... I think quite a lot of it, um, but I think like much like today, people like to point at fairly small expenses of uh, royal families or governments or whatever, and are completely turn a blind eye to the cost of defense. So um, it was it was similar in the 1780s in that yes, Versailles cost an awful lot of money, but proportionately, building up an army and building up a navy was hugely expensive. <clears throat> Plus, they already had debts, which they'd inherited from the previous reigns. And so a lot of what the French um, annual budget was uh, earmarked for every year was simply paying off interests 
that have been around for 50, 60, 70 years. So it's an almost impossible situation to get out of. Um, in terms of finance in particular and the court, <coughs> Louis the 14th, sorry, Louis the 16th um, himself was not the most um, uh, lavish monarch. Mm. Um, he didn't, for example, have uh, expensive mistresses like Madame de Pompadour or Madame du Barry. So he didn't build them big uh, chateaus or give them duchies or um, expensive jewelry. So in, in that sense, he is a more frugal monarch. And he's sort of of his time too. A, a lot of monarchs of the, the late 18th century were starting to dress more simply and act more simply, like Joseph II in Vienna or Frederick the Great in Berlin. Um and I think Marie Antoinette originally probably was going to go along with that, having been raised at a, a fairly frugal court in Vienna. But in the first few years of their reign, she does not have a child and she doesn't have a political voice. And there there isn't really anything for her to do. So if you read um, some of the studies of Marie Antoinette in her first uh, couple of years in France, first as Dauphine and then as Queen, um, there's a really good book called What, what Marie Antoinette Wore to the Revolution, um, which analyzes her thinking in terms of display, because she realizes that her one job is to be on display. And if she can't be the mother of an heir, and if she can't be a political player, then that's the only thing that's kind of left to her. And so she experiments with a lot of different styles for fashion um, and sometimes getting them spectacularly wrong like the famous muslin dress Ooh. where people think she looks like she's naked. Um, so it really shocked and scandalized high society. And finally mm. turns to her, what she's most famous for, her Marie Antoinette style, which is extravagant and over the top. And that then, I suppose, is what draws in the criticisms about spending um, because she needs to look like a movie star. She needs to look like the great... Mm. Uh, glittering center of French culture. So she buys dresses, she gets extravagant hairstyles, and she throws balls and parties because people need to, she needs to be seen. So what better way to be seen than by having balls and parties? So she invites all the elites from Paris. Um, then that's where it does start to go wrong and unravel because she also needs to be the most glittering person in the room and of course, most of the other aristocrats also have diamonds and tiaras, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And so she gets caught up in the diamond necklace affair, um, mm. which is really set up by other people and about other people. She's not even really involved, except her name becomes attached to this fake set of diamonds mm. that are sold um, and that the crown spends huge amounts of money on. And that's one of the biggest scandals of her of her time period. Yeah, let's talk about the diamond necklace affair. Um... How how did I'm gonna to try to say her name right? Uh, Madame de la Motte fall out with Marie Antoinette, and how did she come up with this that we're gonna take take down the queen and we're gonna to try to frame her frame her in a sense with the diamond yeah, affair? I don't think that there was that was any motivation really. I think that they simply wanted to use the name Marie Antoinette and the money from the crown. I don't think there was any uh, intention to bring her down. Um, the Countess of uh, Lamotte, who, interestingly enough, is, is herself a, a very distant relation of the French royal family. Um, she comes from an illegitimate branch of the Valois family. Um, 
I think she simply wanted to make her own way in society and didn't have the money to do it and came up with this scheme to sell some fake diamonds um, and make quite a lot of money. So I think it wasn't really a political motivation, but she mm. also really wanted to entrap um, the Cardinal de Rouen. Um, and there are some various stories and accounts thinking that maybe there is something personal there and that maybe she had had a failed relationship with him or um, I think a lot of the affair of the um, the diamonds diamond necklace is is really obscured and un, a lot of the facts are, are unknown but you know, sir, the jewelers so the, so the person who yeah sorry I was just yeah. going to say so really in the end the person who, who suffers the most um, is the cardinal um, and the Rohan family, who are already uh, really facing their own financial ruin, um, they declare bankruptcy, and uh, some of them even go into exile in the 1780s. So the Cardinal of Rohan's um, participation in the diamond necklace affair is, to me, one of the most significant parts. Uh, Marie Antoinette is just a kind of hapless bystander. But let's talk about bankruptcy, because that's, again, according to Hardman, it seems that if they had declared bankruptcy, which they refused to do, from, from my yeah. point of view, that could have saved the monarchy. But would, would that, do you agree with him there, that if they had declared bankruptcy, that could have saved the monarchy from the revolution? Well, it's, it is a possibility, and we have actually seen precedents for it, because the century before... Um, the Spanish monarchy under Philip II and Philip III was always overspending for the same reasons. They had to have the biggest army, um, the biggest navy, you know, the famous armada that went against England. Um, and the Spanish financial system just collapsed. But Philip III was able to get over this simply by declaring bankruptcy more than once. And what that essentially meant was that the government just simply said to all of its creditors, we're not going to pay your debts. That's the end. Mm -hmm. um, so the people who lose out the most are the creditors, mm -hmm. the people trying to run the bank, because suddenly the government says, we're not going to pay you. So it had happened before. And even, even in England, um, way back in the Middle Ages, I think Edward III did the same thing and just simply said, I'm not going to pay the debts. Um, so it's a possibility. But the trouble is, when you do that, you then alienate those bankers and they won't loan to you again. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if it was an option for the French government in the 15, in the 1780s, um, because they really desperately required the loans from these huge banks. Um, the main problem with the French financial system is that they they refused to adopt a more modern way of doing finances, which was being uh, championed mostly by Britain and the Netherlands, who had a state bank and a state debt, which distributed the debt of the state to every single taxpayer in the whole kingdom. Um, and that it, that way, Britain was able to keep drawing on its own debt decade after decade after decade. And that's what made Britain such a success in the 18th century. The French had tried it in the 1720s, um, and it failed spectacularly. People lost millions, and the only time that there was this Bank of France, um, it collapsed, and there wasn't another state bank until... Uh, Napoleon's time, I think. Mm. So the French have a, a really, I think, long, strange relationship with national debt 
and the idea of a state bank or even paper currency. Um, and certainly Louis the Sixteenth not being that interested in finance or uh, economics, mm. it just didn't seem like the way forward for him. Right. Is this where the popularity of Louis Sixteen and the price of bread is starting to rise when after the time of Netflix affair? Yeah. Yes. So certainly, um, the whole role of monarchy in general for a thousand years is to look after the interests of the people. Um, and, and especially in the 18th century, part of the Enlightenment movement away from absolutism is that the king is no longer the proprietor of the state. You know, he doesn't sort of own the kingdom. He's now the first servant of the state. That's one of the big things that comes out of the Enlightenment. But according to the older way of thinking and certainly supported by the Catholic Church, he's also seen very much as the father of the people. And what does the the father of the people need to do, he needs to provide for them when they're hungry. Mm. That's a huge part of the feeling of uh, of the relationship between monarchy and people. Mm. And so when the monarchy stops doing this and is unable to provide food for people or stop the spiraling of prices of bread, then the relationship breaks down and that's when re a revolution follows. So is it, of course, I think it has been disputed, but it's did Marie Antoinette say, let them eat bread cake instead of bread? Is that, uh, is that on fiction? Yeah, or well, is it, uh... I, I think it's certainly something she might have said. I guess that's one of the things about the time period is that we don't have recordings. We don't have, you know, day-to-day -day, uh, knowledge of what people said or did, but we do have a lot of journalists and newspapers, and a lot of them were, like today, scandal rags you know they really wanted to sell their papers so they had to say scandalous things um the story has been show, told in many different ways and some people say oh well actually she was saying let them eat cake because she meant give them food she mm. meant let let's do what we can to give them bread and then other people dismiss that entirely and say no that's silly she's she was being arrogant and rude and mm. saying well if they want something they should eat cake I think either either one is plausible, and we just don't really know. So it's kind of a myth that we forever circulate, and we don't we'll never really know the truth. Yeah, yeah. I think it just depends on which newspaper you're reading at the time mm. in in France in the 1780s. Mm. So that, that's something someone we talked about, about mistresses and how loyalty earlier. So. There's yeah. someone, a Swedish ambassador, that that's really get essential towards the end of Louis XVI's reign and Marie Antoinette's reign before the revolution. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, Thurston. Now, I would like to add, before yeah. we go get to him, that it seems, again, I would like to refer to John Harnon here. It seems that, according to him, it seems that Louis XVI was rather faithful towards Marie Antoinette, but it wasn't, like you said, he didn't have expensive mistresses, and he seemed rather to be affectionate. I would say affectionate towards Marie Antoinette. Mm. Yeah, I think Louis XVI is seen as, as quite unusual <laughs> in the Bourbon dynasty because they're a family of, of famous womanizers. Um, the most famous probably of all is the founder of the Bourbon dynasty, Henry IV, who has any number of mistresses. Um, I think my favorite anecdote about Henry IV in the beginning of the 17th century is that he has one royal nursery in the palace and insists that the fully royal children and the illegitimate children 
are all raised together, regardless of their rank. Um, and at one point, his wife, the queen, and his mistress give birth to a, a child, I think within a week or two of each other, um, which would scandalize most other monarchies, whereas mm. like, you know, Spain or or uh, Austria. And then, of course, Louis XV had a many, many, many mistresses. But yeah, Louis XVI, I think it's fairly evident, had no mistress mm. at all, which maybe shocked and surprised people at the time. Um and again, maybe you can look back to his relationship with his grandfather and the really, truly scandalous situation of the last royal mistress, which is Madame du Barry. Um, and Louis XVI maybe just decided he wasn't going to follow that path. So it's one of the more unusual relationships in royal history is that Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette seem to actually be faithful to each other for quite some time mm-hmm. until we get her stories uh, connecting her to... Uh, Count Fersen. Or, again, if you believe some of the more scandalous newspapers of the time, um, she had a relationship possibly with the Duchess of Polignac or with the Princess of Lamballe. Um, But we always have to think mm, how much of these are true, how much of them are just newspapers trying to sell uh, the latest issue. So how did this relationship with the Swedish ambassador Fersen occur, and how did he end up in in France, sorry, not Sweden? So he is, um, uh, he's not really uh, something I've focused on a lot as a specialism, but he's hes part of the embassy um, to France. I don't think he's the ambassador, is he? I think he's just part of the suite. I think he's the ambassador, um, I, I, I believe so. Later, maybe later on. At first yeah. he comes because he's just looking for employment. Um, a lot of soldiers go around Europe whether Swedish or Danish or British or even Scottish, there's quite a lot of Scottish soldiers who will move around to get hired wherever they can get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and if Sweden wasn't at war in in the 1770s, France was a good place to go. And so at first he, he wanted to get employed in the French Navy so that he could go off to America um, and get glory. Later on, he returns to France uh, as an ambassador. And that's probably where the relationship really gets started. Um, I think more recently, evidence has come up from letters that they really did have an actual physical relationship. But for a long, long time, it was only suspected um, and there was no hard evidence. Uh, And so depending on whose memoirs you read or whose letters you read, some thought even he was the father of the Dauphin and that he had produced, you know, that she had produced a child with him. Um, I think we would need to look at DNA, um, but but they have done some DNA of, of Louis the Seventeenth, this Dauphin, um, and found that he's fully a Bourbon. So I think no, no Swedish persons there. And again, the the way I understood this is that another team player that is around Marie Antoinette is, of course, the legendary Lafayette, who also fought in American Revolution, and they don't yep. seem to get along quite well. Him and Fersen, how how I understood this. Yeah, I think Lafayette is from a, um, a different, uh, slightly different kind of upbringing and generation. I think he's a lot more serious and really devoted to the ideas of the Enlightenment. La- Lafayette really wants to make change. He's part of this whole group of French aristocrats um, who are all coming of age in the 1770s, who, without necessarily wanting to get rid of uh, a monarchical system, really want very much to try to 
bring what they would say as a British parliamentary system to France. Um, and that's partly why Lafayette goes off to support the American colonies, becomes a great hero of the American Revolution, mm. and then later on is a hero of the French Revolution as well. He's seen as the epitome of this liberal, educated, aristocratic circle, which in the end isn't liberal enough, and they are as well pushed aside when the French Revolution becomes more radical. Um, and so his relationship with Ferson, I think, is that he sees Ferson more as just an adventurer, a foreigner, someone who's come in uh, for his own purposes and not necessarily someone who's going to advance the cause. He's, he's of an opportunist. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's the way he was viewed, fairly or not fairly. Um, I don't know enough about Ferson myself, mm. um, but I think that he would have been seen as a, um, a different element of the court. I think there was this serious group of courtiers who wanted to change society and change politics. And then there was another group of courtiers who surrounded Marie Antoinette and spent time with her at um, the Trianon and really just wanted to continue enjoying the party and spending money and drinking champagne. I think he might have seen Ferris as part of that group. Yeah, but um, something you have to talk about, of course, is it's inevitable when you talk about era is the French Revolution, and it's an episode in itself, and I plan to do, cover it in the future, of course. But the, how, what, how did the French Revolution come about? And and of course, the talk is, I mean, it's obvious, but kind of answer but with the rise of bread, and everyone got pissed off because of the rise of branches. But how did yeah. It was quite brutal even in the palace, the way I understood this, when yeah. the revolution came to Versailles, that they had, they barely escaped. Or did not escape. Uh, well, eventually. Were, yeah. Yeah, eventually. I think this is one of the big, uh, to me, most interesting uh, myths about French history, or the French Revolution in particular, is, and it's still very much taught in schools, that this is an uprising of the people who needed bread. Um, and that certainly is an element of it. That's true. Um, but really, a lot of the French Revolution happened because government collapse um, and because this group of educated aristocrats and bourgeois people, the bankers, the merchants, really wanted to try to change the system. And so when the king showed that he just would not change, um, they had the meetings of the Estates General in May of 1789. And every time a proposal for fixing the taxation system or fixing the economy was proposed, the king would turn it down. Um, and I think it was that, really, that was the trigger of the revolution. And so in order to make them stop protesting, the king surrounded Paris with his army. And whenever you surround a city with an army, that triggers violence. And that's why the, the people in Paris felt threatened. So they stormed the Bastille took the ammunition, took the guns that they needed, and that's that's how the whole thing began. So at first, the first year or two, the idea was to establish a constitutional monarchy, sort of like what you have mm. in uh, England already. Mm. And again and again, Louis XVI just wouldn't really participate. And here's where Marie Antoinette supposedly becomes more and more part of the problem um, in that he never really that strong willed to begin with mm. loses some of his will and becomes much, much more um, unable to make decisions. So I think at this point, going back to what we were saying before about Maria Carolina, her sister in Naples, I think after 1789, that summer 
is when Marie Antoinette really kind of steps up and says, right, I need to be like my mother. I need to be like my sister and kind of just take charge because my husband is is falling apart mentally. But there's, there's something I'm not... And that, I think, becomes the problem. Yeah. Uh, because we mentioned this, we forgot to mention this, I think. And again, uh, what I, again, the way I understood this is that Marie Antoinette wasn't really supposed to be in politics. She was supposed to be seen, not her kind of queen. As from what Maria Theresa yeah. wanted her to be, but she's acting much more than she had planned to. Yeah, the constitutions of the different countries are, are slightly different. And so in most countries, queen consorts don't have a political voice unless they become regent for their child. Then so suddenly Catherine they the, get political the Medici, voice. of course. Right, like Catherine de Medici or Maria de Medici or Anne of Austria, the mother of Louis XIV. So famously, women can step forward and run France, but not until they are the regent. And so I think that is one of the things that she might have seen with her mother and her sister as as because they were given political roles. And she might have thought, well, why not me? And especially now that she has produced a dauphin. And th some of the theories are that in the spring of that year, the dauphin died. And... Louis XVI, one of the theories is that Louis XVI underwent so much depression that he was unable to function as head of the government. So she saw herself as, if not legally, but practically regent in her husband's name because he had become, this is just a theory, it's just an idea, but it kind of makes sense. And so she and and the king's younger brother, Artois, pushed forward in that, that spring and summer of 1789 and said, we're going to make decisions now. We're going to run this government, which it turns out was the, very much the wrong decision. <laughs> and she, she and wasn't, the anger she wasn't trained her. to this, was she? She wasn't trained enough in being a politician or right. in the government. Right, yeah. Yeah, according to what we know about her education, it's, it's lim extremely limited. She hadn't studied history or politics or economics. Um, and I think a lot of the politicians were saying to her, you know, madam, this is not the time for you to suddenly step up and try to impose absolute rule. Um, but she did. And I, I think that's, that's what made it so explosive uh, in July of 1789. And it's very telling that the very next day after the storming of the Bastille, Artois, her, the, the king's brother, who's her most close political ally, the very next day he flees France and spends the next 20 years abroad. So you can see that it's really that conservative part of the, of the monarchy that needs to go right away. Yeah. Um, but then the monarchy survives and is a sort of constitutional monarchy, monarchy for the next year or so until the rise of the radical factions and the 1792-93 period when they just don't see Louis XVI changing fast enough. So he's formally deposed in September of 92, put on trial in January of 93 and executed. And that's when the Republic... Uh, the First Republic is proclaimed. Mm. So, of course, let's talk about the captivity time in chapter. Uh, sorry, captivity and uh, how they try to escape. Because they do and try and escape at a time which, of course, as we know, fails. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, the idea is that if they can get out of the clutches of the Republican or um, or the the revolutionary forces that somehow they can rally the rest of France to come to 
I think the idea is that they they feel like, and, and they're not entirely wrong, is that a lot of France, rural France, isn't very revolutionary. And they think that if they can get out of Paris and really become independent mm. actors again, then they can probably res retake Paris and restore what most people would have said as kind of normal behavior. A lot of people thought the revolutionaries were just crazy. Um, and so therefore they tried to get across the border to the Austrian Netherlands, where the Austrians were in charge, of course, Marie Antoinette's family, and could therefore have given them supplies and an army. And the king's brothers were already abroad and uh, his cousin, the Prince of Condé. So I think the idea was that as soon as they could get across the border, they could regroup, create a royalist army and come back and restore, quote, order to France. But as you know, that didn't happen. They didn't manage to get across the border. They're recognized at Varennes and are put back into a carriage and sent back to Paris. But that that alone is the main trigger, I think, that makes people in Paris realize that the king is never going to support the revolution and that his heart has never, ever been in it, even when he said it was. So... From that moment on, I think they're they're kind of doomed and no one will ever trust them again. So let's talk about the execution because Marie Antoinette, out, she does outlive her husband for a while at least. Yeah. So that's the, but because of the way I, and again, from my point of view, the way I understood this is that Napoleon opposed the execution of the of the Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's maybe difficult to draw together those strings because Napoleon isn't really on the on the stage yet. Um, oh. He's still a young general, just just making his way through. I think the Battle of Toulon is 1791, um, which is where he's starting to be recognized as a young commander. But he's not an influential politician by any means yet. That's still five or six years into the future. Um, but uh, it's de it's decided that I mean most most not most people, I think a lot of people thought the best thing to do would be to send the family into exile. Um, but again, they realized that if they did that, they would then return at the head of an army paid for by the British or the Austrians or any other Bourbon relatives in Spain or Naples. So they couldn't really do that. And so Louis XVI's uh, trial, uh, I think, was fairly balanced voting for yes and no uh, against execution. And then in the end, there is a, a uh, a shift in the balance, and it's agreed that the only way the Republic can ever be safe is if citizen Capet, as i.e. Louis the Sixteenth, um, is is it killed? Mm. Um, Marie Antoinette then lives on for another nine months or so in the Temple, um, and then then in the Conciergerie, uh, separated from her children, and um finally brought to trial herself and executed in september of 93 um her daughter survives and lives for many many more years um and is is this kind of symbol of the restoration in the 1820s um, and the fate of the young son who royalists called louis the 17th is sort of unknown it's kind of known when he dies uh, i think just basically sickness and starvation as a prisoner in the tower um, or the, the temple, sorry. Um, but some royalists believe that he didn't die and that he escaped and that somehow he was going to come back in glory during the Napoleonic era. So there were these people who believed that Louis XVII would somehow survive and, and return to France, hmm. which he never um, did, of course. 
there's no one that I haven't mentioned. You mentioned them briefly right now, but I wanted to talk about the bourbon branch of Spain for just a second before we run run off the episode. And let's talk a little okay. bit what what if here. Could could they have had the right to come back and retake the modern market as Spanish bourbons, or did they not have the right to do so? Would that would that have been accepted if they done so? Uh, well, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I know it's something that um, monarchists and royalists still debate today. Um, according to the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, which settles the end of the War of Spanish Succession, um, it agrees that the Bourbons, a, a younger Bourbon branch, um, will get the throne of Spain and Naples uh, and Sicily, but that they must swear that they renounce the throne of France. Mm. Um, that's the Treaty of Utrecht. But other people have come along and said, well, that's fine, but the Treaty of Utrecht is made by humans, by mankind, by, by the British, by the Dutch, um, whereas succession is done and decided by God, mm. and that divine law is different from human law. And so those people would have argued that the Treaty of Utrecht could be seen as as null, and that if the main branch of the Bourbon family became extinct, then the Spanish branch could move in. Um, but I don't think they would have done that until all of the um, the senior Bourbons were dead. And so there, there's no indication that I've ever known that the Spanish wanted to do that, um, because they certainly respected the right of the king's two younger brothers. Um, the Count of Provence and the Count of Artois to succeed in their turn. And Artois I, had sons too. So so there were Bourbons around. And considering what, with everything going on in France, it doesn't didn't see it doesn't seem very tempting, does it, to go reclaim the throne from no. an unpopular regime. No, no, no. Spain <laughs> Spain certainly had its own issues, its own problems, and already there was unrest in Latin America and the idea of, of revolution sparking there was was already i think fairly much in the air didn't really happen until the 1820s um but news from north america was already filtering down to south america mm. so i think the spanish bourbons had enough on their plate already that rather than try to think about taking over uh, in france mm. thank you so much for coming i think i actually forgot to mention your name in the intro this has been by just today has been jonathan spangler i'm sorry for that if i forgot to mention this your, do you have anything you yeah. want to promote and social media you want to plug in the description or links that you want to me to plug in the description if you wish to? Okay, well, I think one of the things that I've been writing since um, lockdown, which I've really enjoyed doing, is a blog called Dukes and Princes. Um, and you can just search for dukesandprinces.org. And I talk about dynasties, the level down from royal families. Um, so rather than really the Bourbons themselves, I'm really interested in the courtiers who make up their court. So people who are dukes or princes. Um, so, yeah, for example, right now I'm I'm finishing up one on the princess of Lambal because it's connected to this TV show that a lot mm. of people are watching right now. So that's something people could check out. Um, and the book that you mentioned at the very start of this um, podcast about Monsieur and the Second Sons is really very much not about Louis XVI, but really is much more about his brothers. And it focuses on the Count of Provence uh, and the Count of Artois and how they're such amazingly different characters. I'm so fascinated by how different the two of them are and how different they are to Louis XVI. Um, and in particular, it's one of the things I always find interesting is when 
a drama is made, like the one about Marie Antoinette now, um, mm. those two boys are almost always pushed together into one character. Um, so even though he has the name the Count of Provence, to me, he seems like he's got a lot of the personality of the other brother, the Count of Artois. So the, the script writers have just merged the two characters into one. Mm. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been Without Age 12. It's been a pleasure to have you on to talk about Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. My name is Alan. You can find us on Twitter under Without Age 12. We are on Instagram under Without Age 12. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out some other episodes. I'm sure you will like what you find, I hope. This has been Without Age 12. Please like, share, and subscribe. I'll see you next time. Your personal info, like addresses, phone numbers, and more, are collected and sold by data brokers. But Aura steps in, scanning the web, sending you alerts, and requesting your info be removed. Get Aura's full toolkit, including credit and transaction monitoring, a password manager, VPN, and more. Get a 14-day free trial at Aura.com slash safety. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash safety.